Good morning, church. Are you glad that you have hope in the face of death? Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13, uh, but we'll just be focused for our sermon this morning on verses 6 through 8. It's been a few weeks since we were in Genesis. Uh, We took a pause there uh, to think about the coming of our Lord uh, in in the Advent time. But we're back now in in Genesis. And if if you grab the Bible that's on the chair beneath, uh, under the chair in front of you, uh, that Bible on page two will be where we're at this morning. And so if you're there, please join me in reading God's word. This is Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says that now the serpent was more crafty than all, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we, we come before you, Lord, and we recognize that you are a holy God, that you are morally holy, Lord. You are metaphysically holy. Lord, you are radiant and peerless and without sin totally. And also, Lord, you are far above us. You are creator and we are creatures. Lord, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see you created all things and you made them good. 
Lord, we see the paradise that Adam and Eve enjoyed with you during that time. We see Adam spending time with you, Lord, not afraid, not ashamed, not running, not fearful, but enjoying that time with you and even naming all the animals in your presence. And then being put to sleep by you to be given a helper fit for him. What a joyous moment, Lord. What a day in paradise, God, that our first parents enjoyed with you. But Lord, it's not lost on us that something changed. That there was something, Lord, that happened on that day that impacts us today, that has impacted every generation of people who have come from these, this first pair that you made, Lord. Sin entered a sinless world. In our relationship with you, Lord, was changed forever. Father, we thank you that we can, we can read, that we can hear, that we can study, that we can learn about and take into account sin. That just as Pastor Kevin mentioned, we can understand this even most fundamental of things that we need to understand. And that, that is sin, what it is how it got here, how we got the way that we are, how it is that, that we see the world around us enslaved and covered in sin. You don't leave us in the dark, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how it enlightens us. We thank you for what it reveals to us, God. And we pray, Lord, that, that we would take even the basic foundational things this morning, that we would take them so to heart, Lord, that we would not just be hearers, but we would be doers of your word, that we might respond the way that we should respond when we sin. Lord, show us and teach us this morning. We plead with you in Jesus' name, amen. There was a day when there was no sin. There was a day when sin entered into the world. And there is a day coming when sin will be no more. This is the basic message of the Bible on the issue of sin. And in our passage, we see the decisive moment we see that most grievous moment when sin enters the world, the moment where our first parents fall from what they were enjoying with God in the paradise, in the Garden of Eden. It's a moment where their relationship with God would forever be changed, and it was changed because of their sin. Have you noticed that a lot of people don't like to talk about sin? Have you noticed that the Bible talks a lot about sin? 
The Bible's unashamed to speak on sin. In fact, that's one of the most amazing things about the Bible, how raw and honest and, and, and you know, it's, it doesn't have these sort of lingering effects or any sort of whitewashing going on with regards to sin. If someone sinned and messed up in their, what they did uh, in their relationship with God and God's interactions with them, it was recorded and it was, it was condemned. And it was shown and written down for, for our example and our instruction so that we might learn from it and not repeat the same choices, make the same actions, do the same sinning. The Bible is unashamed to speak about sin and tell the real story, not avoid the real issue. The real elephant in the world <laughs> is sin. Two pages into the Bible, and sin is accounted for. The entrance, the spread, the effects of sin are, are everywhere unfolding in scriptures. And as Genesis continues, as we keep going through Genesis, we're going to see this more and more. Adam and Eve, in our passage, become sinners, and then they give birth to sinners. And what does their firstborn do? Sins. Murders his brother. So Adam and Eve, having become sinners, give birth to sinners. They give birth to a murderer and a martyr. Cain murders Abel. And if you could just think for a moment about what happens. Adam and Eve, in our passage, will sin against God. Later in Genesis 3, they'll be, they'll be exiled out of the garden. Think about what it's like for Cain and Abel then to grow up as children of Adam and Eve. Where did they grow up? Not in the garden. They didn't, they didn't have the sights. They didn't have the sounds. They didn't have the smells. They didn't have the experience or nor the fellowship. They never had what Adam and Eve enjoyed. And you can begin to think that, that could, you know, if you never experienced for that, that for yourself, it might be hard to believe that if all I see around me is, is evil in my heart and murder and bloodshed around me, it might be hard to believe that it was ever any different than this. But the, your parents' testimony would bear witness. It wasn't always this way. And you'd have to take them at their word. It wasn't always this way. This isn't how it was originally made. God didn't make it this way. We made it this way. God made it good. We made it evil. If you go on in Genesis, we see that the dreadful state of the condition of man is revealed. Genesis chapter 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
if you fast forward in the Bible to King Solomon's day, he's looking at uh, and understanding the fallen condition of his own heart and though all those around him. Sin is just as perilous, just as prevalent, just, uh, just as it was from the beginning. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 29, see this alone have I found. And he's looking for a lot of different things in Ecclesiastes. This alone I have found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Unfortunately for us, that's exactly what will happen in our passage. Adam and Eve will seek out many schemes. When you fast forward to our day, we see that sin it continues to affect everything around us. It's not just a problem for the people around us or for our parents or, or for the teachers we didn't like or, or, or for the politicians that we don't like. It's not just that they're sinners. If you're honest with yourself, it's that you too are a sinner and I am one as well. And the, the evil that you have experienced and the war and the bloodshed and the injustices and all of this makes, uh, makes sin and the doctrine of sin something that is so clear, so vivid, so experiential for us. One, one theologian, Ronald Niebuhr, in summarizing his view on sin, uh, cited a London Times literary supplement uh, agreeing with it in which said, the doctrine of original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. You've experienced the sin. You have been sinned against. You yourself have, have committed these sins. All the evils in the world remind you that something is wrong. And you have dealt, you were born into this and you've grown up with the effects of this and you've lived with the repercussions of sin and you have been wronged and you have seen death happen to those who you love. You have seen loved ones die. You have seen pain. You have seen toil. You have seen anguish. You have seen enough to desire a better day. A day like our first parents had. You've seen enough to hope against hope for a more glorious future. And you and your turmoil have cried out and wished it would not be so hard and so painful. Sin is the most obvious and self-attesting verifiable doctrine and it's this sin and corruption that demands an explanation. And it's the explanation which these first chapters of Genesis give to us. Has it always been this way? How did it get this way? Is there any hope? Will it ever change? You see, if you take away Genesis 1 to 3, you lose the answer to those questions. If you take away Genesis 1 to 2, you lose the fact that it's not always been this way. If you take away Genesis uh, chapters uh, Verse, uh, excuse me, if you take away uh, chapter three, you're without any explanation of is there, uh, of how it got this way and is there any hope? The, you see, the, the whole human experience and the whole rest of the Bible is the unfolding of what God is going to do in response to this sin problem. This problem is a real problem. This problem is a true problem. This account that we have in the scriptures is historical. It's what really happened and it's what's really affecting our world today. It's what really plagues you and I this morning. So we can't possibly 
think that we do not have a vested interest in this passage. Romans 15 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And when you think about sin, take away these passages. Don't account for sin and don't account for what God is doing in response to sin and you will have no hope just as Pastor Kevin mentioned. And so the main idea of our passage in Genesis 3 verse 6 through 8 is that the fall of Adam and Eve reminds us of two foundational realities about sin so that we will take responsibility for our sin and run to God for mercy and grace. Let's begin with the first foundational reality about sin. That is that we are responsible for our sins, not God. We are responsible for our sins, not God. And you may be thinking that's so basic, that's so elementary. Well, we have to, I'm glad you think so. But we can't take it for granted, and we, we see it right here in our text. How do we know that we're responsible and not God? How do we know that Adam and Eve are responsible for sin and not God? When we look at verses 6 and 7, we see the actors involved in the entrance of sin and the committing of the first sins. And you know who's not mentioned? God. You know who is mentioned? Man and woman, woman and man, their actions are described in, in these verses, and in particular, verse 6. And so we're going to look at what, uh, what, is, uh, what was the woman's actions, and then what was the man's actions, and then why does that matter that we, are, we can see that we are responsible for our sins and not God? And so first, what's the woman's actions? Her actions are captured for us in verse six. And the majority of verse six is describing her actions. And her actions are described with, with four verbs that, that, that carry uh, the description. If you remember in our, our last sermon in Genesis 3, we observed how the serpent schemes, uh, we, we thought and examined the serpent schemes and what he had been doing when he spoke to Eve. And we pointed out that the serpent had three schemes. He distorted the word of God to raise doubt. He did that when he asked, did God really say you shall not eat from any of the trees in the garden? Second, he denied the word of God to relieve fear. He told, he told her, you shall not surely die when God had already told Adam and communicated that in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So Satan denied that. And then third, he deceived Eve to maximize the appeal of sin or the appeal of eating of that fruit. And that's what he did that by saying in verse five that for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And by stopping that sermon at verse five, you might've felt like you had a real cliffhanger. What's going to happen? What's she going to do? Most of you already know. Will she obey God? Will she listen to the instruction from God given to her by her husband? Or will she listen to the voice of the serpent? What is she going to do? Verse 6 tells us, we see a seed of that the seed of doubt and distrust and discontent sowed into her heart 
by the serpent sprouted in Eve a desire that, would, that she'd, she, by the word of God, should have subdued and needed to subdue. She had a desire to disobey. And as she considered what to do, she lifted her eyes and looked again at the tree in deliberation. And three things immediately arrested her attention and made eating from the tree seem nearly irresistible. The first was this. It says that she saw that the tree was good for food. What does that mean? I think that means that it, it had food on it that was food, that was edible. It was fruit. And it was something that could be eaten. And then next we see, it says that she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. And so it was fruit, it was, it was food, it was hanging there from the tree, and it was beautiful. It looked amazing. It was a delight to the eyes. And one of the things, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 2, Look at verse 8 and 9, what it says. Because on these two things, when Eve is looking and noticing these things, her eyes have not yet deceived her. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8 says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So all the trees that God made to sprout up in the garden were pleasant to the sight and good for food. And that includes the tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when Eve looks at this fruit, when she looks at that tree, she sees that it's good for food, which it is. She sees that it's a delight to the eyes, that it's, it's beautiful, that, that God made it and it's lovely and that it's good. And it probably looks like it's gonna taste amazing and all of these things. But it's the next thing Thing that she saw, but what she shouldn't have or wasn't really seeing truly. Here's where her eyes deceived her. The third thing it says that she saw that the fruit or the tree, excuse me, was to be desired to make one wise. Where did she get that idea? The serpent. He said, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So, so here Eve is lured and enticed. She sees the trees good for food, delightful to the eyes, desire to make her wise, or so she thought. So she took of the fruit and she ate. She gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate. I like what Derek Kidner writes, Kidner writes of this moment. He says, The pattern of sin runs through, right through the act. For Eve listened to a creature instead of the creator, followed her impressions against her instructions, and made self-fulfillment her goal. This prospect of material, aesthetic, and mental enrichment seemed to add up to life itself. The world still offers it. 
and he cites 1 John 2, 16. And he goes on to say, but man's lifeline is spiritual, namely God's word and the response of faith. To break it is death. Another commentator, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, says in his Genesis commentary, that first Eve was tempted in through the three areas of 1 John 2.16, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. As to the lust of the flesh, the, the phrase, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, emphasizes the physical. The fruit was physically appealing. Concerning the lust of her eyes, it was a delight to the eyes. This was uh, aesthetic. The tree was aesthetically pleasing. Concerning the pride of life, the tree was desired to make one wise. This is the spiritual and mental. It would be mentally transforming. The Hebrew word for desire is nekmah, nekmad, the same root word as the Hebrew word to covet, showing the essence of covetousness. Eating, she felt, would give her something that she did not now possess. This is the woman's actions. She's fully responsible. God did not make her do this. Her husband did not make her do this. Satan did not make her do this. It was her choice. She was responsible. She saw. She took. She ate. So this then leads to a short explanation of the man's actions. What were the man's actions? Or, or maybe we could even talk about his inactions uh, as it seems like there's just hardly anything uh, here. He, he, he only does, it's only recorded for us that he does one thing. Uh, and he ate. <laughs> She took, she saw, she took, she ate, and she gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And that's just one word in the Hebrew. That's all it tells us. And he ate. Whoa, the silence regarding Adam is deafening. Why did he not say anything? Why did he not speak up? Why did he not protect? Why did he not say, no, this is a bad idea? Why did he not say, no, this is, this is, this is not what God commanded us? This is, good, this is gonna break God's law. This is not gonna result in, in our death. Why didn't he, he tell his wife to stop? Why didn't he, he stomp the serpent? Why didn't he chase him away? Why didn't he raise his voice to alarm of an intruder? Why, why was he there and not saying and not doing anything until she handed it to him? And then he did the wrong thing that he was commanded not to do by taking it and eating it himself. He failed to protect his wife. He failed to guard and keep the garden. He failed to stop her. He failed to stop himself. We don't even see an attempt to dissuade her from doing this. Kenneth Matthews, excuse me, Victor P. Hamilton writes, that the woman does not try to tempt the man. She simply gives and he takes. He neither challenges nor raises questions. The woman allows her mind and her own judgment to be her guide. The man neither approves nor rebukes. And I think this is, this is, this is just great observation that he makes here next. He says, hers is a sin of initiative. His is a sin of acquiescence. 
Who's responsible? The woman is responsible for her sin. The man is responsible for his sin. These are the actions that they did. The only action that we hear about from Adam is the specific action which God himself commanded him not to do. He said to Adam, you shall not eat from that tree. And what did Adam do? And he ate. This is the woman's responsibility. This is the man's responsibility. And they are fully responsible for their sin and and not God. It's so important for us to to understand that. And the same is true for us in regards to our sin. Uh, And here's where I want to press in to you because it's easy to be like, yeah, they made that mistake. And look at what they did in the garden without realizing that we do the same things every time that we sin. And so why does it matter whether we understand that we are responsible for our sins? It's this. Because if you understand that you are responsible for your sins, then then you are in the right place to then take responsibility for your sins. And that really is the point that I want to drive home here. Take responsibility for your sins. It will be almost comical, as Pastor Kevin hits on this uh, next week. I won't won't steal the the thunder. Uh, But they, they... have a tendency, just like all of us, to shift the blame and to not take responsibility for their sin. And don't you know, that's what we hate to do. You hate to take responsibility for your sins. It's absolutely devastating to your and to my human pride. It's the last thing that we want to do. It's why when people come to us and they point out our sin, we're like squirming and we're like looking the other way. and We're like trying to do everything to deflect and to minimize and, and, to, and to get ourselves off the hook. It's one of the most hard, hard and difficult things to say. I am wrong. I sinned. I committed this sin. It was evil. I've disobeyed. I'm a sinner. And so this is why most people will sooner deny sin than to admit that they have sinned. When we were reading 1 John yesterday at men's prayer, we were reminded, if we say, this is the Apostle John writing, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So, Why does it matter that that we know that man is responsible for sin? Because if you don't think you're responsible for sin, you're never going to take responsibility for your sin. You're going to think, oh, I don't need to confess. I don't need to acknowledge. I don't need to ask forgiveness. I don't need to admit nothing because I'm not responsible for my sin. In fact, I'm a victim and it's all happened to me and I'm just the only innocent one here. Yeah, right. If you have sinned, you must acknowledge it. Otherwise, you're deceiving yourself. The truth is not in you. And, and God, you're making God a liar. So here, here's where we're at. God has testified that Adam and Eve ha, uh, have, uh, are your first parents and that he made you and everyone in the world from them. And they sinned and they became sinners and they give birth to sinners who have given birth to sinners who have given birth to sinners who have given birth to sinners till you and I were born as sinners. And we knew that we were sinners because we sinned. 
We have chosen to sin. And when we sin, we find that we commit uh, more and more sin. Instead of confessing and acknowledging and taking responsibility, we in our pride, our sin begets more sin as we try to cover our sin. We see Adam and Eve in this passage try to cover up their shame too. As they realize they're naked, they, they make fig leaves for themselves. What happened there? Why did they need fig leaves? Weren't they just, did we just read that in, in, in chapter two, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they became one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But now all of a sudden, after they've committed what's wrong, after they've disobeyed God's word, then they realize their shame. They realize that they are naked and they want to do something in their own efforts to then cover that up. Uh, I think there's a better thing to do if you've wronged God and sinned against him and then realize you're naked. Lord, clothe me. (laughs) Lord, I can't. Lord, I've sinned against you. Lord, I I have a terrible thing that has happened that I did. Help me. We'll get get more into that in in the next point. But we see our tendency is to not take responsibility. And so realize the condition of your heart. Realize what's at stake. Realize that that everyone else in your life, uh, your relationship with all of them, and especially your relationship with God would be absolutely life-changingly different. And it is. Every time you take responsibility for your sin. First John t- tells us if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that glorious? And here's the amazing thing. You don't have to clean up the situation. You cannot clean up the situation. You don't have the, the, the right to clean your heart. You don't have enough power to do it. Uh, The decay goes deeper than just the the top of the tooth. It's going down to the root. The decay has made its way into the deepest parts of our hearts. Corruption has lodged itself in the innermost part of our human condition. So hear this, know this, and be encouraged to endure with hope. You can't take sin away, but God can blot it out. You can't bestow mercy and grace on yourself, but God can bestow it upon you. Denying your sin won't make it go away. Just as much as a a, a small child closing their eyes and and covering their ears and and singing, you know, screaming and making loud sounds doesn't make whatever's upsetting them that they don't want to see and hear go away. You have to take responsibility for your sin, acknowledging it to God, confessing it to him, and throwing yourself totally and completely on his mercy and his grace, that he will cleanse, that he will forgive, that he alone can help, that he alone can fix this situation. Proverbs 28, verse 13 and 14 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. I want to just ask you right now, can you say with a clear conscience that you're taking responsibility for your sin?
Are you right now looking at, seeing, taking, eating, consuming any sin that you should not be consuming, that God has said is off limits for you, and yet you won't acknowledge it, and you won't take responsibility for it. I like in First Peter, we have a comment where he, the, the apostle mentions that the past time suffices for doing what the Gentiles do. Living with lawless idolatry, following their, their passions, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. The past time suffices. There's no point to continue it any longer. It's a front to God and you know that. And so acknowledge it and turn from it. And no matter how good any sin looks, no matter what, uh, how, how pleasing, how aesthetic it looks, how, how good you may feel like it would be if God has said that it's not for you, then it's not good for you. God's word is there to guard you, to protect you, to bless you. Do you know better than God what is good for you? God's commandments, also from 1 John, our Lord's commandments are not burdensome. This is so that you will, will fear the Lord and do good and enjoy God always. So take responsibility for your sin. This leads us to our second point. The second, most found, the second point that we're making in our time this morning, which is also one of the most foundational realities of sin, is that we are accountable to God for our sins. We are accountable to God for our sins. So point one was that we're responsible. And this second point, we are accountable to God for our sins. In other words, I'm making the point here that God, that we are going to have to give an account to God for our sins. And so if you want to live in light of the first point, take responsibility for your sins. And if you want to live in light of this second point, then you need to take into account that God will call you to account for your sins. That you are responsible and that there's a day when you have to and will answer to God for each and every single one of them. God holds sinners accountable for their sin. You, you know what would happen if God didn't do that? What would happen if he tells Adam that, look, Adam, I made this garden for you. I put you here. I made you in my image to have relationship with me and to, to work in this garden, to be fruitful and, and to multiply uh, and, and to enjoy life here. And uh, I, I gave you all these trees. There's only one that you can't eat from. And the day that you eat from this tree, you will surely die. If Adam and Eve then go and they eat of that tree and there is nothing more to the story other than we realize that Adam and Eve were responsible for what they did, 
God never shows up, if God never holds them accountable, if God never comes through on what he has warned and what he has threatened and what he has promised, then guess what happens to God? He's not faithful. He hasn't kept his word. He hasn't called them to account. He hasn't followed through with what he warned would happen. And if God looks the other way when sin takes place, with no intention, uh, no intention whatsoever to correct it, to call it to account, to bring justice, then God is not just, and he's not holy, and he's not righteous, and he's not good. And so what we see in our passage is God showing up and holding them accountable. Look with me at verse 8. It says that, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the garden. Excuse me. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What happens here? Do Adam and Eve run to God or from God here? Do Adam and Eve run to God here or from God here? From God. Do you think that's the right direction to run? What about if you're in sin? Is that the right direction to run? Some of you may struggle a little bit on that. Like, man, I know I'm in big trouble. Yeah, that's true. But think about it. Do you have anywhere that you can run to to escape? Uh, will, will you get far enough away that he can't, he can't find you and get you? Uh, will you hide good enough? Like Adam and Eve in our passage, look what it says. Uh, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden uh, in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees. So this is an interesting passage because I think it, it, shows, it shows something uh, of what it was like to interact with God. We can't fully know exactly what that is like. But it seems that when God was there and he was walking in the garden, that he had at least some sort of localized presence that they would have seen and experienced and that they could then hide behind trees as God is, uh, the presence of God is, is walking by. I could, I have a lot more thoughts on, on that, but they get quite speculative. I'll try to stick with the text. But either way, they're hiding behind trees, away from God. And, and I think Kevin's going to mention this next week, but this shows how irrational sin is. Because can you really hide from God? You can't. You can't hide from him. So do you see how it leaves you with only one thing that truly makes any sense? If you're not going to be an irrational fool, if you have sinned, take responsibility for your sin and then don't run away from him, but run where? To him. You're like, well, he, he might smite me. He might destroy me. He might, yeah, he might do all of that. What is your only hope? And in fact, you know that you deserve all of that. So, so maybe the first things out of your mouth should be, Lord, you're holy. <laughs> you're blameless, Lord. I'm a sinner, as Kevin mentioned. My, you, my sin against you can't be ignored. 
But Lord, if you would have mercy on me, if you would have grace on me, I am a rebel. I have sinned against you. I have nowhere I can run. I have nowhere I can hide. I'm acknowledging my sin to you. I am not covering my iniquity and I'm relying only and fully on your mercy and your grace to forgive a sinner like me. And I don't even know how you could do that. That's what Adam and Eve should have done. But instead they hide all the way, how they used to enjoy the presence of God. When, when they were with God in the garden, they were not hiding from him ever before. Look what, is, what has happened to them. They've sinned, they've disobeyed, they've transgressed, they're guilty, they're ashamed, they're afraid, and they're hiding. And they're running from him instead of running to him. I love the, the passage in Luke 15 where Jesus speaks about the, par, uh, the, the parable of the prodigal son. And you guys are probably familiar with that, but he tells a story of a son who squanders his father's inheritance. His father's still alive, but he says, let me have the inheritance now. Uh, usually, you, that, like, that's probably considered a highly rude uh, thing to do. It's like, why don't you just die and give me the inheritance so I can use it already? Uh, and he goes off and he uses it and he squanders it and he, he, with riotous living and, and evil and he, he loses all the money, squanders it all, has, a, a fin, you know, uh, has, has, has committed all sorts of sins, uh, ends up and he's, you know, he's, he's, he's next to pigs and he's, he's eating just, just muck. And he realizes that, that he needs to go back to his father. And that even the servants in his father's house have it way better than him. And so he goes, and when he comes to his father, he, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's what Adam and Eve could have said. That's taking responsibility for your sin. And it says, look at the father's response to that, to that humility, verse 22, to that returning to his father. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put on a ring, a ring on his hand and, and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The whole reason that Jesus shares that is to show us the mercy and the grace of the father for prodigals like you and I to return and to humble ourselves and to acknowledge our sin and to be welcomed graciously by the Lord. For us to run and, and, and rely totally upon his grace. For us to hear calls that God puts forth like in Isaiah 55, verse five and seven. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon did you hear that last part? He will abundantly pardon. So, so why not take responsibility? Why try to cover your sin? But if, you, if you don't take responsibility, when you are responsible, you're just lying and deceiving yourself. And, and by, 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 by uh, uh, not... Um, by running away from God, you're not going to get anywhere or escape anything. And so you would be wise to do the only thing that you can do. 
run to him. Call upon him. Confess your sins to him. Cry out to him. He will abundantly pardon. And we get to see a hint of that later in chapter 3. As God takes the skins of, of an animal that apparently he slaughtered and covers Adam and Eve with it in place of their own efforts to cover their own shame. And we think we, that, that that's a foreshadowing of the, the very work of Christ. How is it that God can forgive? Well, we, we, he's going to do it through the one that is promised, this seed that is promised to be born from the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And we believe that that is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who was crucified under Pon- Pontius Pilate, who was, who was put to death, who was, buried, uh, uh, on the, who was buried and put into the grave, and on the third day rose again victorious over the grave and ascended into heaven, and who now offers us life, healing, forgiveness of sins, all if we will run to him. And he is the one who God has appointed to judge the living and the dead. That final day of judgment, when God will call all of us to account, he will do so through his son, Jesus. That seed, that promised seed who conquered Satan and sin and the devil and death. He will judge. He will be the one that we have to give an account And if we stand before him, the only hope that we have to be accepted into his kingdom is to accept the sacrifice that he offered, his priestly work, his sacrificial giving of his life. He came, he lived perfectly, obediently, like our first parents did not. He overcame our enemy. He overcame sin. He conquered death. And he shed his blood to pay for our sins so that God could declare us righteous in his eyes only by faith in Jesus. You see, in our passage, the woman took and she ate and Adam ate as well and that led to their death. I came across a, a, a statement by Derek Kidner, and I I loved it. He said, commenting on the she took and ate, he says, so simple the act, so hard it's undoing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. And that's exactly, again, what Pastor Kevin was saying earlier. Take and eat. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Jesus says in in John 6, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Do you remember what happens in the end of chapter three? It says, now lest man uh, reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat for uh, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden 
cut off from that tree of life, which he could eat and live forever. Jesus comes and Jesus says that he is the living bread. And if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. If you think that just because we've been excluded from the garden of Eden, that you cannot have access to anything or eat anything that will still enable you a sinner to eat and to live forever, then you have got it wrong. You gotta understand who Jesus is. He is the bread of life and his, his sacrificial death, his atonement, his life is what he offers to us. And if you will reach, if you will fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you will take, and if you will eat, you will live forever. Jesus says in Revelation chapter two, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That is our hope. That is a glorious hope that is offered to us. But it is a hope that we cannot have. It is a hope that we will not have if we are not responsible for our sins and take responsibility for our sins, if we are not accountable to God for our sins, uh, and know that God will hold us to account and have our only hope being that we're trusting in the shed blood of Jesus Christ to to, so that we can appear as perfectly righteous before God on that day. And if you understand those two realities those two foundational realities about sin and live and lie to them and proclaim them so that your family, neighbors, friends, co-workers will all take responsibility for your sin and run to God for mercy and grace. You're gonna find him every single time abundantly pardoned. Take a need of Christ. If you're here and you haven't put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today, who plead with you, in light of what we have heard, where else can you go? How, how else do you account for sin in this world? What do you, what do you think is going on in, in this world? Why is your heart the way it is? Why is it that you have done evil things? And is there any hope for us who have done evil things? There is. And I hope that that's become clear to you that you can come, you can put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you can enjoy and eat and live forever all by faith in Jesus. Lord, we thank you and praise you for all that you've done for us, Lord. There was a day, Lord, when there was no sin. There was a day when sin entered the world, and there is a day coming when sin will be no more. Please help us, to live in such a way that sin is fully accounted for, even as you accounted for it in your word, and as you accounted for it for sinners like us through your son, the eternal word. Help us, Lord, to not suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Help us to grow in sanctification and to put our sin to death. Help us to be in awe and motivated out of the mercy and grace that you give us, Lord. Thank you, Father, for accepting us through Christ, through his shed blood on that tree.
Help us to be fruitful and faithful to you this year, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.